Welcome to The Analysis. I'm Colin Brusantis. In a minute, we'll be speaking with the renowned social theorist and organizer Marjorie Kelly on her new book about wealth supremacy and its democratic economy alternatives. Please remember to like, subscribe, ring that bell so you get notifications, and consider hitting the donate button to support our work. Stay tuned. It's been 15 years since the financial crash that brought the global economy into the biggest recession since the Great Depression. And despite steady outrage across the political spectrum, inequality, concentration of ownership, and financialization of assets continue to skyrocket. According to the new book by Marjorie Kelly, that won't change until we address the system-wide problem of wealth supremacy and begin bringing democratic forms of ownership and participation to every aspect of the economy. The good news is many of the alternatives already exist, are functioning well at a smaller scale, and are ready for prime time. Marjorie Kelly's own storied and evolving career has included co-founding Business Ethics magazine in the 1980s, inspiring the creation of the B Corporation, co-founding 50 by 50, which seeks to see employee ownership reach 50 million American workers by the year 2050, and she is a distinguished senior fellow at the Democracy Collaborative. Marjorie Kelly, welcome. Thanks for having me, Colin. Can we begin by contextualizing how you come to write this book? Because in many ways, you're one of the original canaries in the coal mine regarding what we might call friendly capitalism. You come from a business family. You uh, worked at Business Ethics Magazine for 20 years. You handed out Business Ethics Awards. You had quite a name for yourself there. And yet you end up concluding, and I quote from the book, moral capitalism is as impossible as moral racism. So how do you end up at this point? This this book is, is a turning point for me, Colin. I have spent more than 30 years writing about and advocating the positive. I, I know so many progressive business leaders, socially responsible investing these days called impact investing or ESG. I mean, I've tracked these fields really since, since their infancy. And... Uh, Community wealth building is a new form of economic development that Democracy Collaborative is advancing, and it's it's catching on really wide. So there's so much happening. There are so many visionaries building out the positive, and that's what I've wanted to focus on. But I've become discouraged, and I see now that we're losing ground faster than we're gaining it. And the reason is that we have yet to turn and morally discredit the existing system and its core value, which is wealth supremacy. We really live inside an economic system designed to make the wealthy wealthier. And that's not hand-waving. Uh, you know, I've been like a spy inside of business for a couple of decades. I ran a small company for 20 years, um, and I sold my dad's business when after he died. So I you know, I, I know how business works. I've lectured at a lot of business schools. And what and what I can see and what I do for the reader is to unpack the granular ways that the system is rigged. You know, we have this sense the system is rigged against us. It is in very specific ways. Uh, I call them seven myths. So they really form the operating system of capitalism, which we, we accept as normal. It's taught in business schools. It's, the you know, the fundamental corporate governance structure and investing aims. I mean, it's really built in. This wealth supremacy is built in all over until we turn and challenge that. 
I think our efforts are, are going to fail. Let's get to the quick and dirty definition of wealth supremacy, because it sounds like concentration of capital. And of course, every day in the news, there's something about terrible billionaires and people are familiar with the huge amount of inequality that we see. But wealth supremacy, as you're alluding to there, goes actually a little deeper. It goes into the kind of quasi-invisible infrastructure of the system. Yes, that's that's right. Um, I use two terms, wealth supremacy and capital bias. And wealth supremacy is the cultural ethos that admires wealthy people and that uh, empowers them. I mean, they have wealthy people have power in philanthropy. They're, you know, there's a power over government through political donations, and corporations are seen as the property of shareholders rather than as human communities, which is what they are. Um, and so there are so many ways that our culture valorizes wealth. And um, and then there is the very specific ways, uh, there are the very specific ways that wealth has power inside the economy. And this is what I call capital bias. In corporate governance, only shareholders vote. Workers are not considered members of the corporation, which is which is it's odd. It's very much like women at one time were not considered members of society. And, and you accept this as, as a norm. You know, the income statement, which every corporation uses to guide its activity, says pay pay capital as much as possible. That's called profit. It's good. Drive it up. Pay workers as little as possible. That's called expense, and you need to drive it down. So there are various ways that built into just the the structure of power in our economy, it, it favors capital, disfavors workers, the community, and, and the environment. That's a very important point because it speaks to how quickly things that we know can become invisible. Uh, we all know that workers are tending to get shafted by the economy. We've all, Most of us have experienced being the workers getting shafted. And yet when I am working at a company, I am, of course, thinking of myself as a contributor, not an expense. And at the same time, that's not the way the company is organized. Yes, and that you know how we think of this as a, as a corporation as an object owned by shareholders that has consequences. If, for example, when the big tech firms hit hit a downturn in their stock price uh, a little bit ago, the first thing that they did is they threw thousands of workers out of their jobs, and this is so standard. But what they were doing is they were saying, okay, our share price is down. Share prices related to your profit. So you need to boost your profit. That means you need to cut your expenses. So they're basically transferring income from labor to capital very, very deliberately. And it's very, very common. We just accept this as, as, as normal. One of the examples that you give in the book that's really concrete and shows how deep and how invisible the roots of wealth supremacy can be uh, is Harvard College and Harvard University. One might think at first glance, Harvard's a registered charity. It's producing some of the best post-secondary education in the world, certainly in the United States. What could be wrong with that? Harvard is about um, 66, 67% its endowment is invested in private equity and hedge funds, right? And these are the predatory bleeding edge of capitalism right now. When we when we try to regulate capitalism or, or, or enforce change, it flows around whatever barriers we put in place. You know, when they, when they were Superfund laws saying you, you can't 
dump toxic chemicals in waters. Well, what did the chemical companies do? They moved to China. <laughs> so they're like, fine, we'll we'll dump the wa- we'll dump in the waters off off of China. So what's happening here? There have been a number of uh, of uh, investors who've said to the big oil companies, you need to get rid of your dirty assets. You need to divest of these dirty assets. And some of the big oil companies have done this, but those assets, uh, these you know dirty uh, operations, are not going away. They're being sold to private equity. So what's happening is they're they're shifting into the shadows, and private equity in some cases is tripling production on these really dirty. Uh, fossil fuel operations, and so, and yet, private equity is opaque. It's it's non-transparent. It's non-accountable. And so, I, I'm not even convinced that Harvard knows what's going on inside the private equity funds that it's investing in, because what they're focused on is the return. And this is how the system. There's a kind of you could call it a willful blindness. You could call it an inadvertent blindness. But there's there's a built-in blindness to the effects of, of what uh, what we're doing, because some people are just being professionals, doing their job, making sure that the company or the organization gets what it's supposed to get. Yeah, that that's right. We and we have narratives that tell us this is seeking maximum returns for investors. That's benign. That's normal. Uh, that's technically necessary. And so, you know, you have asset managers who are, who are moving assets up the risk return spectrum. That's how they say it, right? So we're going from the public markets to the private markets. And what they don't say, what they don't see is that we might be destroying jobs. We might be trashing the environment. We might be, you know, uh, capturing uh, politics. And that is what's happening with corporations and private equity. But we don't see that. That doesn't we don't see that on the investment statements that we receive from our money managers. And so, you know, we're we're allowed to sort of pretend that we have no role in that. You also really sound the alarm on the urgency of this issue. Of course, a lot of things have been going wrong, especially over the last 15 years. But then you start painting some dystopian situations that are they're not science fiction. They're already starting to happen where we have these kinds of companies buying up water rights and talking right multi-trillion dollar natural resource industries uh, that would be taken away from the general public. Yes. So, Colin, one of the things I talk about in the book is is financialization, the fact that there's economists have warned us for decades that there's too much financial wealth in the world in too few hands. And so the finance sphere of, of assets, it's now five times GDP. It used to be equal to GDP back in the 90s. 50s when I was a kid. But this sphere has to keep growing and growing and growing. And so it has to go out, basically colonize new kinds. They call them new asset classes. And we talk about it in this very technical, benign way, but it's really a colonizing force. And what so what big capital is colonizing now is they call it ecosystem services and water. Water rights um, are a big part of that, hedge funds are right now out in Colorado and California buying water rights because they know that water shortages are looming. The UN warns that by mid-century, half of the population of the globe will be suffering shortages of water. Wow. Now, some of us might look at that as a humanitarian crisis. Capital looks at it as an opportunity to own and extract Wealth, and that's exactly what they're what they're going to do, and and it's not just water; it's also coral reefs. 
and forests and farms. So there's this 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 capital. In, unless we see it and stop it and 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 are alarmed about it, it's going to own the foundations of life itself. Let's get to your second paradigm and start putting a little bit of contrast to wealth supremacy, which also sometimes helps us to see it better when we can start to see alternatives function. Yes, this this is what I love to talk about because this is what I've been working on and what the Democracy Collaborative is working on is how else would you design an economy, a modern, sophisticated economy? Uh, and so what would that look like? Well, for example, worker-owned firms. You mentioned that I was working for uh, to advance worker ownership. We helped to create the Fund for Employee Ownership in the Cleveland cooperatives, um, which is three worker-owned co-ops, like a big commercial laundry that's entirely owned by its workers. And uh, many of them formerly incarcerated uh, people of color right there in the inner city of Cleveland. And they're supported by large anchor institutions like Cleveland Clinic. They're doing all the all the laundry. So it's an example of you're starting to build a different system. Anchors want to want to buy locally, and workers can own companies, and those workers are getting bonuses of eight thousand dollars, eleven thousand dollars at the end of the year. Worker ownership that that's one model. Water we can talk about. We don't have to let capital buy the water rights. Eighty five percent of Americans now get their water from municipally owned utilities. You know, we're taught to fear public ownership. We're told, oh, that's communism, that's inefficient, all, all, all the things that we're told. In the same way that we used to be told that, that women were were hysterical and, and, and so forth, or that, or that black people are, are inferior. You know, we're told that the democratic economy models are, are inferior, right? Uh, and, and they're not. Water, when it's municipally owned, uh, evidence shows that you get better service at lower rates. And the same is true of electricity. Right now in Maine, they're coming up on an election to see, uh, do they want to get rid of these investor-owned electric utilities in the state and have the people vote in? No, we want to have representatives of the people govern the electricity of, of our state. So these are ways that we, we can begin to take back our economy from, from the 1%. What about things like land, finance, are we able to democratize those aspects of the economy as well? Yes, absolutely. I, I talk in the book about um, um, black-owned farms. There used to be a million uh, black-owned farms in, in America, and today there's about 40,000. And it, even those are struggling because Big Ag has moved in and pushed out so many family farms. Um, and uh, Biden tried to forgive the debt that's held by black farmers. And there was a, a Trump front group that they pretended that they were white farmers, but it was really a Trump front group that sued to stop this. Um, so there's there there's some some relief coming their way. But it, it's um, farmers ought to own their land. Investors should not be participating in in a land grab. Yes. And so and so uh, local ownership of land. They're also there are community land trusts where the community owns the land and individuals own the houses on top of it. And that keeps houses out of the speculative market. And uh, in the 2008 downturn, houses in community land trusts had one-tenth the foreclosure rate of traditionally owned homes. So these are just a couple of the models of um, we need land and housing and, and, and water and enterprise and, and banking. 
and and finance all of these all of these there are models that are there we have proof of concept these things can work impact investing is is growing dramatically right now and these are investors saying we want to help solve racial uh, in, inequality we want to help advance the green energy transition and they're using capital to do it so there are positive ways that uh, that this democratic economy is being built right now those are all those are wonderful outlets and I, I, of course I support them wholeheartedly uh, there is the question of how we manage to fight back against the institutional forces of wealth supremacy that are very much moving in the opposite direction if I can localize that problem for myself I live on the endowment lands of the University of British Columbia and in the Vancouver area some of the enterprises that are doing the most good for the community offering the most support are cooperatives uh, Van City Credit Union is doing astonishing things uh, the Vancouver Renewable Energy Co-op is a major beacon of hope. Uh, the community land trusts, which you mentioned earlier, and housing cooperatives are some of the few sources of reprieve from the very severe housing crisis that we have in Canada right now. So we're leaning on these outlets very, very heavily. And yet, I also live next to the Sauter School of Business. Now, the Sauter School of Business is ranked the number one business school in Canada, and it also has a big center for business ethics is purportedly a very ethically concerned institution. When I look at their course offerings, they have 140 courses on their course calendar. There's one fourth year course on social enterprise. There's nothing on cooperative entrepreneurship and nothing on cooperative management. So at the very same time that the surrounding community is leaning very heavily on cooperatives, the number one school business school in Canada which is located in that community, isn't covering. That is such an interesting insight, Colin. Yes, I um, when I was editor of business ethics, business people tended to be more progressive than business schools. Business Because business people live in the real world, right? And they know that there are a variety of stakeholders they have to keep happy. Whereas business schools are holders of the ideology, and they hold tight to that ideology. And and what you're pointing to is the fact that, that we're talking about a new paradigm, right? There is a new paradigm emerging for business and investing for the, for the economy. And it's about, no, you can't, you can't keep running an economy just to serve the 1%. We need an economy for all of us. I mean, it's, it's a, it's so obvious when you say it and that, that needs to be built into the institutions and the practices of the economy. That's the kind of evolution that we're talking about here. But um, business schools, I'm sad to say, are often uh, the laggards. They're 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 teaching the old model. They're teaching uh, shareholder primacy that the that the aim of management is to maximize returns to shareholders, which you can translate as make the wealthy wealthier and ignore everything else. Whoever you step on along the way, it's not considered material. And I'm saying it uh, in a very bald way because I think we need to understand that that's exactly how, how it is. I would also add that most business schools do have professors who are advancing the new paradigm. They tend to be marginalized. Uh, I, I'm told by economists that they can't get published in, in, the, in the really mainstream journals. Um, uh, I, I was told by one Harvard professor that he finally got permission to to do a class on a new economics and uh, alternative economics. And, and, but what they made, they gave him one caveat, which is that majors 
in economics cannot take the class. <laughs> as long as they're not training economists. <laughs> only only the little peripheral people can take can take that that loony stuff. <laughs> but but nonetheless, this, this new paradigm is advancing, and I think it's unstoppable. Um, and business schools, I I, I um. I think business schools are not going to look good in the eye of history because what they're teaching is is wealth apartheid. They're basically saying serving the wealthy is is our aim, and uh, whatever whatever is done to advance that is is okay. You mentioned many pieces that are promising, and I shouldn't say promising. They're functioning very well, as you mentioned, things like community land trusts, various kinds of cooperatives, employee-owned companies have very good success rates and as well as more communitarian purpose and more democracy. Um, you also mentioned community wealth building, which sees some of these pieces coming together to support each other and create a bit of an amplification effect. And that's very important too, because we need to accelerate these activities to be able to start dealing with problems at scale. So how do we get above the noise, make sure things like municipal governments, which could be also amplifying a wealth supremacy paradigm and often are, uh, are moving into this paradigm and helping to bring those elements together, supporting a move towards a democratic economy paradigm. And are there examples of communities that have succeeded in doing this that we can turn to? There are, Colin. There are places that are successful at this and there and 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 mayors are interested. At the city level, People know their communities are in trouble, right? Mayors don't live in an ideological world like a business school does. They live in a real community, and if their communities are in trouble there, they know something different needs to happen. And um, our former uh, president, Ted Howard, is he and I co-authored The Making of a Democratic Economy. He's right now in Amsterdam, Amsterdam, and he has uh, a couple of year contract to work on building community wealth in an immigrant neighborhood there. So there's a pretty large project happening there. Um, we also, uh, Neil McEnroy, one of my colleagues at the Democracy Collaborative, he has been uh, an advisor to the government of Scotland. And Scotland has taken a whole nation approach to community wealth building. Uh, there have, there was a leading county there that, that showed you can do community wealth building successfully. And now every county in, in the country is is doing a community wealth building plan. And community wealth building, I mean, there's various pillars. It's about land and housing and enterprise and good jobs and 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 local local investing and all of these things as a way to keep wealth local, keep it circulating and and have wealth in in broad-based hands. I mean community wealth building is basically the idea of transforming communities by them having ownership and control of their own of their own assets, and we um, uh, inspired some work, participated a, a bit with some work uh, in 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 an England community, Preston, England, which was a Rust Belt community, or and uh, it, probably, it still is to some extent. But they their city council took up community wealth building. They actually moved the needle on unemployment and poverty in that city to the extent that it was recently named. Uh, the best place to raise a family in the United Kingdom. Wow. So community wealth building. I mean, our our staff working in this, you know, can't keep up with with all of the demand uh, for cities wanting to do this. And it, it's really it's the democratic economy being built at the local level. It's pretty exciting. 
very, very exciting stuff, especially since um, these are replicable methodologies. Uh, there is still the question. I'm glad that we get a chance to profile it here, but those municipalities do need to be able to get above the noise in order for the other municipalities to know about those successful projects and adapt to those methodologies. So do we not also need the larger, uh, bigger name politicians, the state leaders, the national leaders to be talking about this stuff as well to make sure it's on everybody's radar? We do, ab absolutely. And, I, and I'm happy to say that Biden put community wealth building into his economic development um, strategy. We, we were thrilled to see that. I'll say the governor of Colorado has made employee ownership a real priority and uh, is, is, is developing a, a lot of avenues for advancing that at the state level. So there are and there, there are something like 16 centers for employee ownership around the country, one in each state. And uh, so there, there is work happening. Um, the thing that I see, Colin, is that... Um, it's not enough to build the positive. We're not going to get there by just scaling up cooperatives or scaling up impact investing. We need to do that, but that's not the sole essence of transformation. We also need to turn and discredit and stop the financial extraction. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 I I do believe and, and my hope is that is it wealth supremacy, capital bias. These these might serve as a kind of a unifying name for the problem. And then that tells us, well, what's the unifying name for the alternatives? So we need to begin seeing this work as, as unified and as a system change alternative. We're not quite there yet. But let me give you one example. Our CEO, Stephanie McHenry, was formerly the president of Shore Bank Cleveland. Uh, and you might be aware of the institution in the U.S. called Community development financial institutions. It's a terrible name. <laughs> very long. A CDFIs. There's a thousand of these around the country. And the very first, the the, the model was Shore Bank. And this is this is a bank in Chicago and they had a sister bank in Cleveland that existed to make good loans in disadvantaged communities. And they figured out how to do that as a profit making bank. Profit making but not profit maximizing. And um, so, but so they, you know, Stephanie's bank was making good loans in Cleveland, disadvantaged neighborhoods. Leading up to 2008, big capital moved in, started putting predatory mortgages on these homes, particularly um, pushing these onto black families who might have qualified for traditional loans and uh, virtually ruined and melted down the global economy in the process and along the way shore bank was destroyed it, it, it was it was uh, devastated in the 2008 downturn so it's an example of how we can build positive but then predatory capital will come and, and devour it and, and i've seen this we used to have so many community banks in this country now and they got they got devoured and, and turned into uh the big banks um it, it were i i was involved with consumer co-ops uh in, in the U.S. and they basically invented organic food or marketed, created a, a market for organic food. Co-ops don't control organic food anymore. So what we build will be devoured until we turn and, and, and start to take on uh, the idea of the system as it is.
That's a it's a sobering point, but it's a realistic one. Uh, we can build viable alternatives, but will they actually be able to take up space? Not unless we're calling out the problem at every stop. That's right, and stopping the extraction, which is which is working in the opposite direction, and which is so much larger than than our our little uh, positive experiments. Is that do you think the central challenge that we face, and and something that you do speak of a bit in the book, is the speed of big money. And it's hard when we're building up, say, cooperative movements, which usually begin with some people scraping together their nickels and dimes to start a local credit union, and then mm-hmm. one loan at a time sort of building up. Good stuff, great work, often really benefits a community, but it is much slower than the rate of big money. People like you and me, Colin, we want to focus on the positive. We're positive people. We want to build a better economy. And um, you know, we don't want to be naysayers or tearing down capitalism. Um, I've never wanted to to be that, but but I've come to see that what we need to tear down is not capitalism. This is an economy. You don't want to tear down the economy. We rely on it, right? But what we need to take apart is the idea at the heart of it, which is that economies exist to maximize returns for capital. That's what business schools are teaching. That's the premise of investing. That's the premise of corporate governance. That that's the idea we need to take on and discredit. And that's why I call it well supremacy. Uh, because we know we know that white supremacy is is discredited and 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 morally invalid. And we need to recognize that the wealth supremacy is morally invalid, and yet it's 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 everywhere. And so taking on that idea is different. We're not attacking individuals. Uh, we're not tearing down anything, and we're recognizing that idea has become has become outmoded. And I think um, what I'm hoping is that this can begin to penetrate. Um, this idea that that our capitalism is inevitable, it will never change. Uh, I mean, there are people, many people, who believe it, that it's easier to imagine the end of life on Earth than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. So there's this imaginative impossibility that that captures us and 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 prevents us from from hope and from and from unified action and i think that's that's what we need to to penetrate and to change that would be a great closing note i want to go into one more subject if that's okay which sure. is one potential area that pertains to if we think about a different paradigm there is a very sizable opportunity and that is something that is currently a big problem which is uh, what's called the silver tsunami, this cascade mm-hmm. of retiring baby boomer entrepreneurs mm-hmm. uh, in Canada. And I'm sure it's about 10 times larger in the United States. But in Canada, the Legacy Leadership Lab has estimated that there are 700,000 small and mid-sized businesses at risk of closing because of a, a lack of succession planning among these retiring entrepreneurs in the coming years. Um, and I know a part of the employee ownership funds that you mentioned at the beginning of this interview was about changing some of the work in Cleveland, which was initially very focused on starting new worker cooperatives from scratch and going, right. can we save these existing, often community pillars in Cleveland by helping the workers purchase those companies? Yes. Thank you for bringing that up because that is a, a, a tremendous historic opportunity that there is this transition of baby to boom entrepreneurs and most small businesses close. A few will be sold to competitors. A few will be sold to private equity. And we have an opportunity to say, no, let's sell them to workers. And there are financing mechanisms. Workers don't need to come up with the capital. There are, there are ways to finance it. Uh, we could have 
a, a huge wave of worker ownership uh, coming. And actually, capital has a role to play in it. And you can have you can have reasonable returns financing these kinds of, of transitions. There was a large Canadian pension fund that uh, paid for the transition that financed the transition of Taylor Guitars. And workers will ultimately own that company and benefit from its from the wealth that they are helping to create. While the pension fund will get reliable long-term returns. So yes, Colin, we could, this is a real opportunity for a transformational movement. Marjorie Kelly, thank you so much for the time that you've given us today. I really encourage everybody to read this book. It's a very readable, accessible book, and it's full of very useful facts, but it's all contextualized so well that you can also see the bigger picture while looking at those facts. So I really recommend everybody go and pick up a copy of Wealth Supremacy and uh, let's expand this democratic paradigm. Thank you so much, Marjorie. Colin, Colin, thanks for having me. This was great fun. And thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to support our work, you can go to the website, sign up for our newsletter, and consider hitting the donate button. Take care.